Well, as I've prepped to preach on this week's gospel reading, Jesus driving money changers from the temple court, it's increasingly given me a knot in the pit of my stomach. There is, of course, the normal surge of self-righteous adrenaline I get when those corrupt temple authorities get their comeuppance. But there's also grown a nagging realization that not only don't I have an obvious or simple takeaway for us from this incredibly important event, but then the one that I do have might be off the mark at best or entirely self-serving at worst. You'll have to stick with me for a bit and come to your own conclusions, I suppose because I have not drawn one yet. Powerfully speaking and acting God's truth is the prophet's vocation. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple is a dramatic example of his own prophetic role, one-third of the threefold office that Jesus fulfills, prophet, priest, and king, king as Lord of all priest as reconciler and mediator and prophet in the fearless proclamation and enacting of God's word and truth. This is what prophets do. They speak God's word and truth no matter how disconcerting or inconvenient. We know right from the beginning of John's gospel that Jesus does more than simply speak God's word. He is God's word. What he says is more than the truth. He himself is the truth. And this is more than just a little bit sobering. I mean, Jesus is irresistibly attractive when he's confronting injustice, hypocrisy, and the misappropriation of God's good name. And the desire to have wrongs put right and looking forward to the day God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven ought to be deeply rooted in the hearts of everyone who encounters the living God. Which means a powerful and nearly irresistible temptation confronts us when Jesus takes up the whip and drives out these obviously corrupt and pitiless people gouging the poor pilgrims who'd come to worship at Passover, these money changers whose temples, whose tables were tolerated and even encouraged by the temple authorities, who should have known better. These priests had made a career of studying the word of God and were committed to building an institution ostensibly to proclaim and embody that word. Yet, they'd somehow managed to accommodate something that to our eyes is so patently corrupt and cynical. I don't believe they ever set out to exploit God's authority or his good name. More than likely, it was just drift. They'd simply settled into comfortable patterns and habits that enabled them to turn an increasingly blind eye to something that just wasn't in any sense the way it ought to be. We all know what that's like because that's exactly how cultures work, which is why we must remain 
vigilant to root out our own drift, our gradual accommodation to things our culture insists are necessary or good, but stand in conflict to the authority of God's holy word or to our identity in Christ. So beneath the surface, the condemnation Jesus serves up isn't just for corrupt representatives of a long dead institution, but rather for people who in their time and place were doing no more in spirit than we do in our own. Some context might be helpful. As John tells it, just after the wedding feast in Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, the first of seven signs in the Gospel of John, Jesus and his friends return for a short visit to Capernaum. Then following this in the text, he heads straight up to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast where he cleanses the temple. And immediately, textually, we hit a speed bump. By the way, I probably have already told you this, but I have an irrational fear of speed bumps, which I am slowly getting over. <laughs> but I'm bump. But here's the speed bump. Here's the speed bump. Or as they say in Africa, the sleeping policeman. At first sight, John has a very different chronology of the ministry of Jesus than we read in the other three Gospels. John mentions three Passovers at which Jesus was present in Jerusalem here in chapter 6, verse 4, and in chapter 11, verse 55. In, other, in the other Gospels, Jesus is described as going to Jerusalem only once. The Passover feast, when he's crucified, is the only one they mention during which he also cleanses the temple. And as they tell it, it's his only visit to Jerusalem, except for the trip to the temple when he was a boy. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this occurs at the end of his three-year ministry. During what we now call Holy Week, in John, it happens right at the beginning. So whose facts are right and whose are wrong? The truth is that there's no real contradiction here at all. John and the others are telling the story from different vantage points, and they don't contradict but rather complement each other. Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, whereas John concentrates on his ministry in Jerusalem. The synoptic gospels hint that there must have been other trips there. In Holy Week, for example, they have Jesus mourning over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke hint that there must have been other times in Jerusalem. That's one thing. Another thing is that there are only a couple of sections in John where chronology is critical. And he lets us know when by saying things like the next day or immediately, something like that. Otherwise, John's timetable is what one commentator Riley calls loose. He's not that interested in writing a chronological 
chronological biography of Jesus, but supremely interested in showing Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah. In other words, John's not telling us when Jesus cleansed the temple as much as he's telling us that Jesus cleansed the temple. Because according to Malachi 3, that cleansing is a direct act of the promised Messiah. John wants to establish this fact right away. Right at the beginning, he shows Jesus acting in the way that the Messiah is supposed to. All four evangelists are describing the same event for different audiences and with different aims. And so we get a complete picture of the temple cleansing when all four, when we allow all four of them to complement each other. Here's how the four of them report the words of Jesus. Matthew tells us in chapter 21, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Luke is nearly identical in chapter 19. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark in chapter 11 says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And John has it in chapter 2, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And it's that subtle difference in Mark, the phrase, for all the nations, that really stands out here to me and gives me that knot in the pit of my stomach. Here's why. It's been suggested that there are three probable reasons that Jesus stormed into the temple court and acted as he did that day. One, for sure because his father's house was being desecrated. The sale of cattle and doves and pigeons and the privilege of exchanging money were initially permitted in the temple court as a service and convenience to pilgrims visiting for Passover. They'd need animals for offering and to exchange any foreign currency that bore an image, a violation of the second commandment. So they exchanged them to shekels, which were acceptable for paying the temple tax. Under the chief priests, however, these good concessions had devolved into a convenient means for making money and had debased the temple. Jerusalem would have been packed with pilgrims, and as required, they'd have come to the temple to offer sacrifices. And rather than reverence or awe, the scene would have been pandemonium. Of, of sweaty vendors hawking their wares with all the filth, noise, and disorder that would have gone with it. This was an insult both to God's good name and a desecration of his house. The church where I grew up regularly hosted traveling music groups, and they would always have their LPs. Yes, LPs. We were old school back then and uh, other stuff, their merch uh, to sell. But at my church, they weren't allowed to do this, at least not in the target-rich environment of the foyer where everyone entered and exited. The rationale came precisely from this event. Jesus clearly didn't like it when people hawked their wares in the temple, and therefore we shouldn't sell stuff around the sanctuary. To be sure, the place of worship in first century Israel and the auditorium of a small independent church in Southern California don't correspond precisely, 
But true to Jesus' words, my church didn't want the place of worship co-opted as a place of commerce, which is good. The co-op for commerce in the temple was a problem for sure. But really, I don't think merchant church was the only or even main thing Jesus was angry about. So that's the first reason. Second reason that I believe he may have come into the temple that day is, is another thought about why Jesus did what he did, less clear from the context, was in order to show that the whole notion of animal sacrifice, which had become irrelevant because of the hardness of the hearts with which it was being offered. The prophets had been saying this for centuries. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea had all said the same thing. The sacrifice of an animal could never make a man or woman right with God. You might think, well, obviously, but that's irrelevant. We don't do that. But we're not free from this same kind of tendency, liturgy, ritual, confession, and the raising of our hands in worship when offered as expressions of genuine devotion to God and of love for him are blessed things. But when they're substitutes for honest love and devotion, they make God sick at heart. This has always been true. This is why I say all the time, there are no such things as rote prayers. There are only rote hearts. For sure, acts of worship, disciplined acts of worship can heal us and draw us when we're hurting or doubting, and we ought to keep them up in our pursuit of God, even in our pain and doubt, but they ought never be offered in pride or hardness of heart. There's a third reason Jesus may have done this, and I find this the most compelling. It's Mark's curious addition of the words for all the nations. Here's why. The temple consisted of a series of courts leading to the temple proper. There was the court of the Gentiles, followed by the court of the women, followed by the court of the Israelites, then the court of the priests. All of this buying and selling was going on in the court of the Gentiles, which was literally the only place into which a Gentile might come. Beyond that point, access was barred, and uh, I, I believe that they were very strict about this. Uh, I had an experience myself on the Temple Mount, not, um, not uh, with Jewish worshipers, but with Muslim wor worshipers at the time of prayer. I found myself on the far side of where I'd entered and literally got kicked out the wrong door into a part of Jerusalem. I had no idea where I was. It took me hours to find out where I needed to be. But they were very serious about me not being there in that place at that time. So if there were a Gentile whose heart God had drawn, the court of the Gentiles was the only place they might distantly touch God. And so the tragedy here was that the priests and the Jewish traders in a very real way had barred access to God for any outsiders, for anyone not already in the club. And this enraged Jesus. Central to that was what he quoted from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Ground zero for Israel's worship had drifted 
to the point that it was completely out of sync with, the, with Isaiah's prophetic vision, the kingdom of the heavens that Jesus had come to inaugurate. According to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 56, outsiders and outcasts would come and join themselves to God and be gathered with his people since Israel's founding. When God made his unconditional covenant with Abraham, which, by the way, he has never rescinded and, in fact, extended to include Abraham's spiritual children, you and me, the very reason God would bless them was so that they would, in turn, for a thousand generations, make it possible for everyone to experience the grace of God's favor. The court of the Gentiles, the very place designed all along for outsiders and outcasts to congregate, for the nations to seek the Lord, was overrun because of Israel's drift into an easy cohabitation with what had become the status quo, its failure to flesh out its calling. They'd crowded out the very space set apart for the nations to draw near, and therefore Jesus was driving them out. The great sadness of this scene, I think, isn't so much the rows of product and price gouging, but that all of this left no room for outsiders and outcasts to come to God. This place of worship ought to have prefigured the hope of God's restored creation, a day when, according to Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations would flow to it. And many peoples would come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And because their practice and place had drifted so far from what should have been Israel's shared vision, Jesus had had enough. God's people were so out of sync with God's plans and purposes that zeal for God's house consumed God's anointed. It had to stop. So what? What's the takeaway? No merchant church? I wish it were that easy, but I don't think so. At least not for me. It's, it's deeper and more personal. And that's why I have a little knot in the pit of my stomach, and I hope I'm not too far off base. Because I believe with everything, with everything in me, that God has also given Redeemer a shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors, to which, given Isaiah's vision, I would add, whoever they are, four generations. And we cannot allow this vision to drift. We cannot slip into an easy cohabitation with the status quo. We must keep fleshing it out. This will require that we be a zealously worshiping body, tirelessly committed to evangelism, discipleship, catechesis, children, and genuine community. A place where it's possible for everyone to experience the grace of God's favor for generations. Because this is true flourishing. And I have become convinced that this will not happen effectively as nomads moving from rental facility to rental facility.
every couple of years or whatever. For whatever reason, despite all the challenges of COVID and your pastor, God has showed Redeemer remarkable favor both financially and in numerical growth in 2020. You can't tell it. Anyone watching online, you can't. It's full. It's <laughs> packed. There are people in the parking lot. But our growth in numbers means we have a challenge. By the time in the not-too-distant future that our lives take on any semblance of normal, we're simply going to need a bigger space than the one that we're in now. And this was actually true before COVID, and COVID bought us a few extra months or an extra year. Our building committee has been meeting, and although we definitely need more, we do have some money in the bank for this. But the big challenge is there's no obvious solution, not in this community, at least not one that we can see today. This might sound a little discouraging, but I believe this is exactly the kind of point at which God delights in displaying his strength. Zechariah 4.6 says, it's not by might, nor by power, nor by human ingenuity or creativity but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. This past Wednesday night, as we were praying at the conclusion of our building committee meeting, I, and I was really feeling a weight of helplessness, the Holy Spirit, I believe, nudged me with a thought. Pray. Pray. That's where you must start. This may not seem to you like a stunning, the most stunning of revelations, but because I'm not by nature or habit what you'd describe as a prayer warrior, I was like, oh no, has it come to that? But seriously, I am asking us to pray, to seek the Spirit of God both individually and corporately because we face a daunting challenge and that's where we must start. To pray that we would remain faithful to our shared vision, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for the lost, to pray for our leadership, to pray for a space and to pray for the resources that that will require. I'm not sure exactly what form this will take, but our staff, they don't know this yet, and our vestry are going to be talking about this over the next week. I've already talked too long, so I'm going to end it. I'll be in touch about this, but please, don't wait. Please, start praying for this today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Standing together, let us pray, uh, let us uh, confess our faith, saying the Nicene Creed.